You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is a university distinguished professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. He has over 220 refereed publications on observational cosmology, galaxies, and quasars, and his research has been supported by $20 million in NASA and NSF grants. He's won 11 teaching awards and has taught two online classes with over 300,000 enrolled and 4 million minutes of video lectures watched. He's a past vice president of the American Astronomical Society, won its education prize, has been an NSF Distinguished Teaching Scholar, Carnegie Council's Arizona Professor of the Year, and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute Professor. He has written 70 popular articles on cosmology, astrobiology, and education, two textbooks, a novel called Shadow World, and eight popular science books. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Chris Impey to the podcast today. Yeah, delighted to be with you. Welcome. That's quite an introduction. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, obviously I, I shortened down what you sent us and it was tough for me to do that, Chris, because you've done a lot. You, you know, obviously you know, as a fellow academic, you know, I, I understand the need to do peer reviewed research and those types of things in our field. But I was really impressed with how much uh, writing you've done for the general public, both articles and also uh, the, your books. You've written a novel. Uh, you've been on several podcasts. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about your background, what it is you do, and then how you also got into that part of your profession of making sure you communicate with the general public as well? Um, sure. You won't hear it in my voice, my accent, but I'm, I was born in Edinburgh. I'm a Scot. Um, had a little transatlantic childhood that sort of wiped out the Scottish burr. But if you, if you feed me <laughs> single malt whiskey, it would come back. Um, and, <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm sure you noticed if you've gone to Britain that you look up and there are not many stars visible there. So once I decided to do astronomy, I knew I was going to leave. So I did my undergrad work in London, graduate work in Edinburgh, and then left and never looked back. And I'm a dual citizen now. So astronomy is big in Arizona. I've not looked elsewhere. The grass is never greener anywhere else. We're building the biggest telescopes in the world, and we have five observatories within an hour's drive. So this is the perfect place. Uh, to do observational astronomy. So I've been very happy. Uh, but then as people's careers evolve, you know, the writing uh, research papers is important. It's the sort of stock in trade of the academic. Um, but it's also, you know, the texture of the average research article is that of a three-day-old bologna sandwich. It's, 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 almost designed, <laughs> it's almost designed to be indigestible writing at the constraints of an academic discourse make that happen. Um, so I was always interested in more popular writing, so I segued into textbooks. And then I realized the problem with them is that um, you've, written, you've written a textbook and that's a nice challenge, but then the publisher just wants you to update it every year or so. And it's like, okay, that's not so exciting. I think I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, <laughs> and then I think more broadly, apart from just liking education and being in very committed to teaching and mentoring students, you know, I've just seen the, well, even before the sort of large waves of misinformation and the assault on facts in our culture, mm. it's, I've viewed mm. it as an obligation of a professional scientist to communicate to a larger audience because, well, to be blunt, we're paid by the taxpayer. And, um, and also there's a lot of misinformation out there and science is often misperceived or characterized in wrong and inappropriate ways. And so I think all scientists should not just stay in their little lane doing research, but they should, if they can, some better than others. And not everyone can be Neil deGrasse Tyson, that's fine. But I think there's an obligation to communicate to larger audiences. And once I got into it and got practiced and better at it, then I now enjoy it. I mean, it's like I couldn't imagine not doing it. And so books just flow out of that because writing popular articles is just a sort of lighter version of writing a, a technical article. Um, but And then, you know, you want a meaty subject, uh, you do a book-length version. So I've been writing about cosmology and astrobiology, um, and I started about 10 years ago, I say. I think it's my ninth book, Exoplanets. So books are fun. They're more challenging. You know, you have to take on a big subject and distill it down and make it you got to make it have a resonance for a person with no, maybe with no background in astronomy or maybe just a little background, and you're taking them through what could be a very esoteric subject. 
Um, so that I like the challenge of that. Um, although the books are exhausting. Once I've done a book, I don't want to, I almost <laughs> don't want to look at a book or read a book or write a book for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Do people ask you like, when's the next one coming out? Of course. Like right after yeah, you finish. Are, uh, it's like having a baby. Yeah, it's like, I'm not going to go there about the having a baby because my wife would, my wife would give me a hard time. There's nothing like having a baby. You can't even imagine, you know. Uh, and, that is a and, good and man. She, yes, and, job. Yeah. yeah. She's right. Um, uh, but, but like having a baby, you know, women may feel that and then they do it again, you know. So I write the book, have have a slight, you know, trauma afterwards or just a letdown. It's a little bit of a letdown sometimes when you finished any hmm. big-ish thing. Um, so, but but I, I, I do like writing, so I'm committed to it. Yeah. So you're you're writing and thinking and studying a lot about exoplanets these days? Yeah, it's a super hot field with the number has up to 5300 last time I checked on NASA's website. <laughs> and remember, you know, 1995 the number was zero. Mm-hmm. So this is all I remember that. So it's all the last few decades and uh, and it's just growing gangbusters and 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 now it's a slightly unfortunate because I have we have students here who are working on exoplanets or astrobiology, and you know there was a time when if you discovered one cool Earth-like planet or water world, you could write a paper about it. Well, now you know you'd have hmm. to find a hundred interesting things to write a paper. So the bar has been raised just by the success of the field. But the <laughs> interesting thing is that it's moving to a new phase. So the, the most of what's known about those. 5,300 exoplanets is not much at all. There basically is either a mass or a size or maybe both and you get a density and no, it's a gas planet or a rocky planet. And that's it. We can't characterize almost any of these thousands of exoplanets. So the next stage of the game, everyone's taking a deep breath in the research field, is to try and characterize the atmospheres and the geology and of course find life. And that's just a very hard experiment. It's just much harder than detecting an exoplanet in the first place. So uh, there's sort of excitement in the air because if I were betting, I would say that within five to seven years, we will have done the experiment of looking for life on some of these Earth-like and super-Earth planets that are nearest to us. And we'll either know the answer, either there'll be microbes on those planets that have altered their atmospheres, or there won't be. And that will be an amazing experiment to have done. So it's really on the horizon. Um, But it's daunting because it's a very difficult experiment. Earth-like planets are a billion times fainter than the stars they orbit. So you have to, and they're far away, so they appear very close to their star. So you have to isolate the planet from the star, blot out the billion times brighter star, and then smear the feeble reflected light from the exoplanet into a spectrum and look for molecules that indicate life, like oxygen, ozone, methane, water vapor, and so on. But the molecules you're looking for are always in the atmosphere itself, right? Like you wouldn't, and I understand that, and I think we all do, but, you know, some people listening may not realize that that's that's what you're looking at when you're talking about with the spectrum is the makeup of the atmosphere. Nothing about like if there's, if it's a rocky planet, what's on the ground, Right. I guess. Right, and it's important for people to realize that that the characterizing the exoplanets is done in that indirect way. Well, for instance... Of those 5,300, only 150 have ever had an image made of them. You know, seeing is believing. It's nice to have images of exoplanets. Right. That's a hard thing. Hmm. And those images are, are, you know, they're pathetic, a few pixels. They're, they're, they're just they're <laughs> pale blue dots at a, in a far away. So there's no, and if you ask this, you ask the question of when will we be able to make an image of an exoplanet to be able to see continents and oceans? The answer is, the answer is maybe never. The answer is decades or a very long time because it's just too hard to make images that sharp of things that far away, even with space telescopes. So astronomers have to be a little more indirect. And the clever method that's on the table now and will be done, James Webb is doing some of this, but not was never built to do this experiment. It will actually be better done with the huge uh, set of ground-based telescopes under construction. So the experiment is you use the star to backlight the exoplanet when it crosses in front of it and the backlit, the light from the star filters through the atmosphere of the exoplanet and imprints absorption from these relevant molecules called biosignatures. So that's the experiment you're doing. And it's still hard. um, And it's also not clear you'll get an unambiguous answer. Um, You know, obviously oxygen 
and its cousin ozone are the prime biomarkers because on Earth, the oxygen we breathe, one part in five of our air, was put there by microbes billions of years ago. So the reverse logic is if you see oxygen on an exoplanet or in the atmosphere of an exoplanet, it must have been put there by life because oxygen is so reactive, uh, so volatile that it disappears. If there's not life to sustain it, it, say the biosphere of the Earth shut down overnight, the entire biosphere just shut down, just imagine the thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Within five to seven billion, a million years, so very short time in geological terms, the oxygen, that one part in five we breathe, would be gone. It would rust things, it would dissolve in seawater, it would oxidize with rocks, mm -hmm. and it would be gone. So if it were not put there originally by life and then sustained by photosynthesis and other life processes, it would disappear. So the logic, therefore, is if you see it elsewhere, bang, it's got to be microbes putting it there and causing it to be there. Hmm. Unless there's some hitherto unknown non-living process right by which so that's a happen. good point and and there is a debate there because the the, the data that's going to come in will first of all it'll be noisy it won't be beautiful perfect spectra so they'll be ambiguous to interpret and then when you see it what is the where's does the bar set for being enough and the geologists have weighed yeah. in on this and so Whereas the, the sort of simplistic view is, well, if you see any significant level of oxygen, certainly 18%, like on the Earth, it's got to be biology. Um, it's, that's pretty much true, but geologists have figured out ways where without biology, just with geochemical reactions, on a, on a, you know, if you conjure up a geochemistry, you can get 6%, 5%, 7% oxygen. That's not, you know, that's quite a lot, more than most people would have expected. So the geologists are saying, well, hold on, you know, Yes, a lot of oxygen is probably a biomarker, but you would have to know more about the planet to be sure that it didn't have some weird chemistry and geology going on. And it's the same for any of the other biomarkers. Methane is a biomarker, too, because it's produced on Earth, you know, mostly by life, a good fraction of that, cow farts, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah. so it's the same argument. So so these, these, uh, these wonderful and difficult-to-obtain spectra are going to be, everyone's going to jump all over them and hope they give an unambiguous answer, but they might not. Science is not always as cut and dried as that at the frontier, which is where we are. But it's an exciting experiment, and it will be done fairly soon. And then a sort of related issue is that um, it's not just microbes. I mean, that's just looking for life as we know it on the Earth. Um, you could also look with the same technique, and this is an interesting possibility, for what are called technosignatures. So biosignatures is just evidence of life, typically microbes, because we think most life in the universe is going to be microbial, even if it's not exactly like our form of biology. But you could also look for things that are produced by t our technology, like uh, chlorofluorocarbons, which, you know, were responsible for almost killing the ozone layer for a few decades until we sort of ruled them out of refrigeration units. And, and there, are other, there are other chemicals that are produced by industrial mm. or activity in a civilization, which would normally be very trace ingredients in an atmosphere, barely, you know, not present at all, really. And if you could detect them in an atmosphere, it would be indirect evidence of a technological or industrial civilization on that planet. And that would be very exciting. So that's the same method being used to ask a very different question. But it's a more challenging experiment because these are trace ingredients. I'll give you an example. I mean, we're all aware of gl climate change, global warming, and we've seen the carbon dioxide content of our atmosphere increased by 30% roughly in the last few decades. That's quite a lot. It's obviously concerning, and we know the implications. But if you step back and look at the Earth from afar um, and say, well, shouldn't that just be obvious? Shouldn't some other alien civilization look at the Earth and say, oh, those people are really screwing up. They're killing their atmosphere with climate change and fossil fuel burning. The answer is probably not, because Carbon dioxide is a trace ingredient of our atmosphere, and 30% increase on a trace ingredient would actually be very hard to detect from a distance. So even that dramatic thing that we are all anxious about on our planet that's clearly caused by industrial activity and fossil fuels is not dramatically obvious from a distance. So, so these, these are quite difficult experiments. The technosignature experiment is much harder than the biosignature experiment. One of the things that you had said um, 
when looking at these exoplanets was, um, you know, we look at them and we want to see them and what's going on with them. And then you added the line, and of course, detect life. Hmm. And I'm, and that's where our conversation has gone for the last couple of minutes. But I'm wondering, you added that that phrase that that seems to think that finding life is part is almost the entire reason for studying exoplanets. Um, and I'm wondering, a, why you think that, mm-hmm. and um, and b, what that says about you know making it very narcissistic and earth centered. What that says about us. Right. Okay. So good question. And. I can unpack that in parts. I mean, yes, if I were a geologist or a planetary scientist, I'd be just pleased as punch and happy as a pig in a poke to just study exoplanets. That's all. That, I'm <laughs> happy. I've got 5,300 new right. new geological worlds to study, uh, whereas the solar system only has a handful. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, if, so depending on your discipline, you might be totally satisfied with just the existence of exoplanets and their basic properties. But, but astrobiology, I mean, astrobiology writ large is the search, the study of life in the universe. And the context for that search for life in the universe is the fact that we only know of one example of life, and, and that's on this planet. And everything in astronomy and the history of astronomy and the Copernic from Copernicus onwards has told us we're not special, has told us there's nothing singular <laughs> about our planet, about our solar system, about our galaxy or our position in the galaxy, and so on. In space and time, we are not special. And so, you know, for biology to be unique to this planet, when the ingredients are widespread, we, we've detected carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, the biogenic elements, out to distances of 12, 13 billion light years, almost to the birth of the universe. Water is one of the, you might think, special. Earth is a water world. Well, actually, some of the exoplanets have 10 to 30 times more water than the Earth. So it's not, the Earth isn't really a water world, even. Pale blue dot, it's not that special. And water is one of the most abundant molecules in the universe, too. So all the ingredients, the table is set for life in the universe. And as the universe has evolved and is quite old, more and more of those biogenic elements are made by stars and spat out into space to become part of new star systems and planets. And so in an old, mature universe with a lot of heavy elements and with many habitable locations now, the best guess is 20 billion Earth-like habitable worlds just in our galaxy, then it just, whether or not it's central to astrobiology, it absolutely begs the question, is biology unique to this planet? Because it it really shouldn't be statistically. (laughs) However, logically, you know, to be correct and scientific, it's possible that there were a unique set of accidents and flukes that led to life on Earth, and it is unique. It would still be extraordinary, and most, I mean, most, we can't do the experiment. It's historical science to wonder how life on Earth developed, and nobody's ever built a cell from scratch in the lab. People have done various parts of that experiment, and they can't connect all the dots, but they've done some very interesting experiments that certainly suggest it's not a fluke that the whole thing happened. You need time. You need the possibilities of uh, chemicals bumping into each other and getting more complex. But that tends to happen. It happens if you do it in a computer, and it happens if you do it in a lab as well as you can. And so the, the, you know, the, the context of the ingredients for life being so widespread and there not seeming to be any sort of bizarre, flukish occurrence in the development of at least replicating molecules that could store information, if not a full cell, um, would certainly lead you to anticipate life elsewhere. And then game on, because the big question then is, so there are two, you know, almost binary questions you're trying to answer, which is why the field's so exciting. Um, Is there life beyond Earth, yes or no? And then if yes, uh, is it like our life? Is it biology? Because everything on Earth from a fungal spore to a butterfly to a blue whale is the same biological experiment. They seem like very diverse things, but that's one genetic code, one single biological experiment that led to that diversity after a long time, after 4 billion years of evolution. Um, (laughs) And there's no reason to expect, even if the ingredients for life and the basis for biology exist far beyond Earth and in many locations, there's no real reason to expect that it would play out the same way elsewhere. And so that second question, is it like Earth life, is a very big question. 
just as a, a curiosity, um, when did, if you know, um, when did microbes appear on Earth? So the ver- the earliest, the indications of life on Earth, the history of that is, is really tricky because, you know, as you know, the Earth is a restless we planet there. and we weren't yeah. there. It's historical science. And it's yeah. possible you may never answer the question. The, but the big problem is the restless Earth. The, um, you know, right. it's very hard. There's only a handful of places on Earth, Western Australia, Greenland, somewhere in mm-hmm. South Africa, where you can find four billion-year-old rocks. They just don't mm-hmm. exist. I mean, everything's been churned by geology and eroded and weathered and so on. So just even, and that's about when we think life started. So you're dealing with, you know, a crime scene where the evidence has been trampled many times and the crowds have just obliterated the evidence. So that's a hard thing. And then the second hard thing is that the incipient traces of life as you get to cells are very indirect. They're sort of just geo, they're biochemical tracers or sorry, they're, they're chemical imbalances, isotopic imbalances of radioactive versus normal carbon and so on. Um, because you're not looking for fully fossilized cells. So the you you so the so if you're just looking at what would be called chemical tracers of life, they're pretty good and but argumentative. This field is not resolved. Traces that go back about 3.8 billion years. Um, if you're asking when do you have the first um, fossil life forms, fossilized microbes, single cells, uh, then you come forward to 3.4, 3.5 billion years, and that's people then stop arguing about it. I think they believe that evidence. And then there's this enormous long time between that and multi-celled organisms. Mm-hmm. That step in the evolution of life seems to have taken a long time. You could infer that that means it's difficult or doesn't happen very often, but that's a dangerous inference from data of one. All the inferences hazardous. <laughs> so astrobiologists have to keep pinching themselves and saying, it's a sample of one. It's a sample of one. You know, don't draw too many. <laughs> one does not make a line. <laughs> don't draw <laughs> too many can... conclusions. That's uh, right. So... So, yeah, the cell formation, the evolution of the first cells and microbes, um, you know, seem to have taken three or four hundred million years from the first chemical traces of life. But those chemical traces, we don't know. There's that zircon that was found in Western Australia, 4.404 billion years, mm-hmm. accurately measured by radioactive dating. And it, it it speaks to having formed in an aqueous environment. And so there's evidence really soon after the earth formed when it was a, just a hellhole of a place you know impacts and craters and geological activity that the earth surface was almost tacky like magma and yet there were there were in the ingredients for life there so nobody would rule out life going back very close to the formation of the earth um, but then tra- but tracing all these evolutionary paths is really hard i mean we have stromatolites which are the modern mm-hmm. and modern you know descendants of the first microbial colonies. And you can go to Western Australia, Sharks Bay, I've been there, and it's great. They're stromatolites. And you these were the same, they're just the same as they now as they were three billion years ago. It's really cool. Yeah. One of the things you can't see behind me is my stromatolite collection. <laughs> One of the reasons got a few collections. Yes. Yeah. It, well, it's fascinating. Three. Does that make a collection? <laughs> Uh, it's good enough. It makes a collector. <laughs> How about that? It makes a collector. Yes. Um. <laughs> it's like primitive counting systems. One too many. So I, That's have, right. I have many. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the reasons I was asking that question about Earth, because you were talking about um, these very far away planets and looking for microbial, uh, likely microbial life then showing up in the atmosphere by its various products. Um, And so my question was stemming from how far back are these planets that we're looking at? And if it took Earth a really long time to create its microbes, Mm -hmm. then perhaps, right, since we're looking so far back in time that maybe those microbes exist now, but when we're looking at them, they didn't exist, Right, that, that lovely time-space right. question. So, so in that context, it's important, it's useful to remind me to say that the exoplanets we're finding are in our backyard. So okay. Ke- Kepler, NASA's Kepler mission is really responsible for almost half the exoplanets, even though it, it stopped operating a few years ago. Um, and so the, the most exoplanets we know of are within 
a hundred to a thousand light years. And that's oh, our backyard. Close. The Milky Way yeah. is a hundred thousand light years across. So this is our backyard. And of course, that logically, therefore, we're only seeing them as they were a century or a millennium ago, which is no time geologically. Yeah, it's no time at all. So we yeah. can't see, um, you know, that far back. So we're not really looking at ancient history. However, the, the more important point, having mentioned that carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and water have been around in the universe for a long time, is that we now can very confidently say, even if we can't locate such objects, that an Earth clone, just think of something as close to Earth as you could imagine, could have been created within a billion years of the Big Bang. And that's seven billion years before the Earth formed. So there are potential biological experiments out there that have a seven billion year head start on us and then add the four billion, four and a half billion years of evolution. And that's boggling because, you know, we can't imagine what evolution and biology might come up with given 10 or 12 billion years to evolve rather than four. Or, or maybe it makes no difference at all. Maybe these things are slow and they're hard and the Earth was actually one of the fastest kids on the block rather than one of the slowest kids on the block. We don't know. <laughs> Sample of one again. Sample we, of one. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just put yeah. that as a big asterisk over almost everything I say so I don't have to keep saying sample of one. <laughs> That'll just be today's episode title. Yeah, right. right. Today's <laughs> sample, sample of, of one. <laughs> yeah, induction, induction so, is a bitch when you can't do it. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the uh how it's possible how we might detect it but what what do you think it might do to our sense of self and our sense of spirituality our sense of humanity our sense of of earth should we start discovering life outside of uh, uh, or at least biological markers in other places. Right. I mean, I think it sort of bifurcates. Um, if we find microbial life elsewhere and, and, and prove it, you know, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and even if we don't know if it's our biology or not, it's just a biomarker that's irrefutable or a set of biomarkers. That will mm. be a transformative epochal event in the history of science. It'll be dramatic. But it will make front page headlines and then fade, I would say, fairly rapidly because it's microbes. Like, you know, that's pond scum or, or stuff on your shower curtain. Like, okay, who cares? So, <laughs> I mean, being facetious, but not too facetious because I think the public will just be interested and science-interested people will be very interested and books will be written and documentaries will be made and, and so on. But in the public consciousness, I don't think it will permeate very far or persist very long. Of course, the counterpoint of if we decide we found intelligent life in the universe through those technomarkers or if SETI succeeds, you know, the search for artificial mm -hmm. radio or optical signals from a, some civilization, so they're obviously artificial and they couldn't have been produced by nature, that will be more profound, of course, because that's companionship in the universe. Uh, and that will raise all sorts of questions. So I think it really divides that way. Um, and, and since the universe logically if life exists in the universe elsewhere, there'll be many more microbes than intelligent civilizations. You know, it's going to succeed in that first mode. Although SETI is a side bet. I mean, SETI for 65 years has been placing this little side bet. Okay, yeah, we can look for microbes and those are hard experiments and now we can almost do it. But let's always place this side bet of looking, of jumping over the evolutionary path from microbes to men or humans and look for those intelligent technological civilizations directly. And, and so it's worth doing. I, I'm not, not science, scientists are divided on SETI. Even astronomers are divided on it, whether it's a worthwhile pursuit or not, whether it's even scientific or not. That's the strongest critique of SETI is that unlike, you know, if I wanted to go to the National Science Foundation and get a million dollar grant to study some issue of you know, solid state physics or high energy physics, I'd have to propose an experiment and define my parameters and how I was going to control variables and say how I would interpret the data and have a hypothesis that I could refute or confirm. SETI doesn't have that kind of situation. They don't know how to define right. success or failure even. Hmm. Well, they can define success more or less, but they can't define failure and they can't say what the probability of success is. So it's not a normal scientific pursuit. So that's the critique of SETI from scientists, but I still think it's worth doing. You point you you talked about, 
And I think you're probably right um, in terms of how much people will care in the long run or in their day-to-day life or, right, like, okay, so we found some microbes from, you know, a thousand light years away. I don't, that didn't reduce my student loan at all. Right. But like, (laughs) didn't, thank you, it's nice, saw the headlines, it's now three years later, I've moved on with life. Um, But I've noticed that you did a lot of work with the Vatican Mm -hmm. and with monks. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a different population that might respond to and other religious figures. But specifically those, I'm asking you because those are the groups that you've worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, They might respond a little bit differently to to this existence. Um, Could you speak a little bit about your work there or... Uh, or anything in this idea of how it would change. Sure, and and maybe maybe preface it with just the cultural comment, which independent of religion, that the the other issue that will arise with, I mean, if, if microbial life is found elsewhere, and astrobiology is a real field with the subject matter, finally, um, yeah, it's it's that's foundational for science, and of course, it re, mm-hmm. it terraforms biology because you know if you want to poke, if a physicist want to poke at biologists who say, well, you've just spent your whole life studying one form of biology. What about all the other forms? You don't have a, you don't have a general theory of biology like we have a standard model of particle physics because you've just been studying one thing, like staring at your navel. Well, what about all that stuff out there? Okay, so, so it'll be a big deal for biology, for all of science. Um, but mm-hmm. on the intelligent life or advanced life, the, the problem with what happens out the scientific community, is it's not a tabula rasa. It's not a blank slate. The, the popular culture, especially in the U.S., but, but almost everywhere now, is so primed for the fact that, A, it's already there and sure, and B, it's visited, mm-hmm. and three, it's abducted some of our people, and four, it, I mean, make a list of all the conspiracy <laughs> theories and wild <clears throat> ideas about alien life. And they're just so embedded in the popular culture that this, like the, the, the fact of the existence of intelligent aliens has been amortized. It's sort of been, it's just already been built in. It's baked in to the culture. And so, you know, that would lead to a collective shrug. Well, sure, we knew that, you know, the government's been hiding this stuff hmm. from us for 70 years since <laughs> Roswell. So, you know, and now you astronomers are coming along and telling us, oh, it exists and you're all excited. Really? Oh, come on, you know. So I think that's the larger cultural issue or problem or whatever. It's not a problem. It's just amusing to me. Mm-hmm. But as far as a religious reaction to this, and I'll say right out the gate that I'm I'm an agnostic, you know, which my wife's a pretty hardcore atheist, and so she gives me a hard time about being agnostic. She thinks that's a kind of it's a kind of <laughs> wussy position to take. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, and I argue with her. We argue vigorously about that one. I, I argue with her, and I, I use uh, the phrase that was attributed to Feynman, and I think he did say this in the biography of Richard Feynman, famous physicist. Um, his biographer said, Feynman believed in the primacy of doubt, and that he held as a high <laughs> scientific mark. Mm-hmm. And, and doubt, mm. skepticism and doubt is a, is, is a very high mark of a scientist. So I'm, I'm proud to wear that mantle of skepticism, doubt, of not being sure and being mm-hmm. okay with not being right. sure. So I'm yeah. an agnostic, but I do keep bad company. And some of that bad company is Jesuits. <laughs> um, don't, you know, don't, don't go drinking with Jesuits. You'll, you'll, you'll end up in a, in a Rome gutter somewhere and they'll be, they'll have got back home <laughs> safely. Um, with the Buddhists, the other group I hang out with, you don't have to worry about being drunk in a gutter because they really don't drink. Uh, they do bend the rules a bit. You know, I've seen them eat a lot of meat for people who are supposed to be vegans and vegetarians. But anyway, um, those are the two <laughs> tribes that I've sort of affiliated myself with. And their reactions or perspectives on life in the universe is are, are quite different. They're interesting each. Um, the Buddhists that I've been with, and I've read behind this, of course, and read some of their more, you know, the scholarly articles written about this, um, it is completely unexceptional in their tradition to contemplate a universe filled with life um, that could be more advanced. It could be human-like or it could be more advanced or different from humans uh, in also a vast universe with cycles of time and birth and rebirth and death 
of the universe and rebirth of other universes. So, so the you know the Byzantine possibilities of life in the universe are pretty standard stuff for them and would not surprise them at all. They do get into more tricky issues when they come to define life itself, which biologists, of course, have trouble with, or sentience, which is also a tricky issue. But on the larger issue of the existence of life in the universe far beyond Earth, that's just non-controversial to them. And, and when I say that's what we anticipate and that's what scientists expect, it's like, okay, sure. Um, and the Jesuits are in a different, slightly different space. Um, they're, of course, in a, an unusual space, as we know, within the Catholic Church, because they're, you know, they're they're the scholarly branch. You know, they're they're devoted mm-hmm. to scholarship. They've from uh, Gregory and the calendar reform. They were liberated to measure the heavens, and then eventually that just segued smoothly into doing astronomy research. So the Jesuits have been doing you know, pretty straight up astronomical research since certainly the early 19th century. So quite a long time. Um, and they have that sort of intellectual independence of being able to be, um, pursue those ideas. All, all the Jesuit astronomers I know, there are, I think, 11 or 12 in the Vatican Observatory, and they all are, live the double life. They're all PhD astronomers, and they're all priests with parishes. So it's not a problem. Whoever else, whoever elsewhere might think there's a conflict between science and religion, they don't see it. They don't feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and no. if you ask, <laughs> and if anyone out there wants to hear more about that, yeah. we they have can an episode, to episode, yeah. <laughs> episode one thirteen with Brother right. Guy, the uh, director of the uh, Vatican Observatory. Director, sure. yeah. So yeah, I've known Guy since well, since he was a grad student actually, um, and a long time. And yes, and so they they're pursuing it from a scholarly direction. And for them, it's also uncontroversial that there would be life elsewhere. Now, what is the, you know, what does that do to God's creation when you imagine that Earth and humans are no longer the centerpiece of it? Um, That's a more interesting question, and I've had debates about that. And I heard Jose Funes, who is the previous director of the Vatican Observatory, an Argentinian astronomer, in a press conference, actually, in the Vatican City-State when we had a conference on astrobiology, in response to a question about astrobiology, because that was what the conference was about, he gave a very interesting answer. He said um, he gave a parable of uh, Christ in the flock of sheep and how, you know, there was the, there was the sheep that, were, that was lost, and then, you know, you had to gather back to the rest of the flock. And he he didn't complete the story. He just left it hanging there, and so you were left wondering: Are we the lost sheep? You know, and the other, <laughs> and all the intelligent aliens out there are the rest of the flock. And and what's the message? You know, so he he, he hmm. sort of almost muddied the waters with his little parable. Um, but in the manner of how they view the universe, they're following the rules of physics. I used to team teach graduate cosmology with Bill Steger, who's one of the one of their tribe. Um, sadly, died a few years ago. Um, we teach cosmology, and, and he's a relativist. He works on general relativity and the Big Bang and all that. And if I was just wanting to pull his leg at breakfast, we had breakfast before we taught just to organize ourselves. You know, I could do one of two things. I could say, "Oh, Bill, you know, we." Physics, we got you with physics, you know, that your God of the gaps is squeezed back to the first 10 to the minus 43 seconds. God of the gaps, there it is. That's a little gap. And then physics (laughs) physics owns the rest, you know. And then if I was really feeling frisky, I'd sort of, since he was a Catholic, I'd tease him about the three impossible things he has to believe every morning before breakfast. Virgin birth, (laughs) resurrection, etc., you know. So, um... I don't know how all those circles are squared truly because we've had, you know, I've had conversations, but I know that it's not a conflict or a tension or even a problem to imagine life in the universe and even intelligent life. So for neither of those two very different religious tribes does it seem to be an issue. So can you talk more about especially how you got involved, because I think that science for the monks and nuns program was really interesting. And, you know, one, how you got involved, but, you know, reading your book, Humble Before the Void, was just very interesting to kind of see about your experience from there. And and you told us before we started recording that you wrote that after your first time going, and that you've been there eight or nine times now. Um, 
what has all of this been like for you? How has it had an impact on your work and also your personal life? And if yes, in what ways? Yeah, it was a it was a sort of profound. It's been a profound experience since 2008, I guess. So it's almost 15 years and eight trips. Um, so the first time was one of those great things of you come across the transom professionally. Sometimes I got a call from a of a colleague that I didn't know that well, who he knew I had an education, a good reputation as an educator, and he just called me. He's a postdoc in, at Berkeley, actually, an environmental science postdoc. And he said, how'd you like to go and teach the Dalai Lama's monks cosmology? And it's not a question you ruminate over or look at your look at, look at, Oh, I'll check my calendar. You know, let me get back to you. No, you just say yes, and then you make it happen. So I said yes, and then it happened. And I was, I was savvy enough, in hindsight, to take my 17-year-old, Paul, with me on that trip. <clears throat> and he'd never been anywhere out. He'd been to Europe a couple of times, but he'd never been to Asia or anywhere exotic, if you like. Mm. And so that was a pro profound trip in that sense. It was a bonding with your 17-year-old. And, a, you know, <clears throat> we were a little more adventurous together than either of us might have been on our own. Um, and so that the context was that invitation. And then I learned that His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, who famously has said in his, biography, his autobiography, um, that if he hadn't been selected at age four to be the 15th reincarnation of the Bodhisattva of Compassion would have been an engineer. Fine. Hmm. That's an interesting statement to make. Um, but, <laughs> and it meant that when he was a child in Eastern Tibet in a pretty primitive village, you know, he would just infuriate his parents by taking apart their clocks and mechanical devices and never, never quite hmm. putting them together again. So he had this analytic, and mechanical and engineering and scientific mindset, even as a child. And then, of course, his future was cast into the role he had he took. Um, but he's always had that strong interest in science. So he looked around 20 or so years ago and realized that the monastic tradition, his the Gelug tradition, of course, or other traditions in Buddhism, um, was sort of outdated. You know, the monastic training was extremely rigorous. They take years and years of rhetoric and philosophy and theology and comparative religion and all sorts of things, but there's very little science, very little math. And in the schools, there's very little science and very little math. And he just thought that was unacceptable. He said, my monks and nuns, the nun part actually did come later, and that was a good part of his work to make the level of playing field for monastic training to include nuns. But he just said, these, my monastics cannot be prepared for life in the 21st century if they don't have science and math. And so in yeah. the manner that he does these things, he just looked around and waved his arm and said, make this happen, you know. And I, I've now heard <laughs> from proximity to people in his orbit that His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says a lot of things. He has great ideas. He's very activist. He's very visionary. And he says all sorts of things. And, and people scurry around and sometimes they just ignore him. Sometimes nothing happens, you know. They just, <laughs> um, but this one, they decided to make it happen. And, and what happened was they, uh, they looked around Dharamsala and they found this young postdoc, the guy who called me out of the blue, uh, who is an educator and a scientist, a young scientist. Uh, and they just glommed on to him and they said, hey, can you help us with this? Can you set something up? And so he set up the Science for Monks program, then Science for Monks and Nuns when the nuns came on board. Uh, and I was one of the <clears throat> early people he called. And so the model was to bring three to four Western teachers in different subjects. The Dalai Lama's core interests, it doesn't mirror a bit his interests, which are um, evolutionary biology, neuroscience, physics, math, um, and then environmental sciences come on board too. So it's not every field of science. Mm. So these we would come out as Western teachers, and there'd be cohorts of monks, and then monks and nuns, about 24 in a group. And we do three-week intensive workshops, and they're very intense. You know, we're in the classroom six, seven hours a day, and then our evening sessions or observing with small telescopes. So it's kind of grueling, actually, but it's inspiring as well. Um, and eventually, the idea is that enough of the monks and nuns will be trained to be educators themselves, and you won't need to depend on mm -hmm. Westerners to come out and do this. And they're not really there yet, mm -hmm. but they could get there. I, I don't want them to get there, because then I won't get invited out. 
So, uh, <laughs> uh, so it was a it was a singular experience, and the book I wrote, of course, was fresh because I, I was really I wrote it not long after the first trip. Um, and to your question of did did it affect me or change me? Well, yes, in many ways, some of which I probably haven't fully appreciated. I mean, first of all, it was a deep embedding in a culture in a way that I'd never done. I was a pretty experienced world traveler, but you know, in that sort of slightly superficial way of someone who goes to Asia and, you know, tries to hang out and go to a bar and a local restaurant mm-hmm. and see the sights, but you don't really get to know the people that well. You're moving around. So being three weeks, sometimes four weeks, and then traveling with them afterwards or during, you know, really you get to learn the culture. You also see in these northern Indian towns, most of the workshops are in northern India. There's now in southern India, I've been to Bhutan, Nepal for this too. Um, they're, they're mixing very well. India has a, you know, kind of black mark on it right now with its current government of sort of sectarian strife and <clears throat> most recently with the Sikhs, but also obviously with Muslims. But in those little northern Indian villages where they're sometimes 50% Buddhist, 50% Hindus, they really get on pretty well. I mean, they're just, mm-hmm. they're sort of under the radar of the geopolitics or the, uh, what the Modi government is doing at the time. So, uh, it works pretty well, and it's nice to see that. Um, so I learned that. I saw the culture up close. I would be part of their rituals and go, you know, and, and see everything they saw and listen to their prayers and talk to their scholars. And so it was a pretty deep embedding. And then as far as my my own life, when I come back, rather than just view it as, you know, amazing experience, I got some beautiful photos. I had these great memories um, it, it did sort of make me reflect a little uh, because of their the ethos they had, and their ethos is is of course very um, very different from most of a Western ethos. Uh, it's it's uh, um, Buddhists are all about compassion and suffering, mm-hmm. suffering and compassion. They do go together. They're almost bedfellows. Um, so I got the message. I think very early on when I was walking towards the lecture hall and it was, it was at one of these Tibetan children villages and they're very poignant places. There are about 11 or maybe now 14 Tibetan children villages in the Northern part of India. And that's where the refugees go that escape. Excuse me. So almost all the monks in my early workshops left, um, Tibet when they were teenagers, even younger, brought across the ice fields by family members at great risk. Some didn't make it. Others lost toes Mm -hmm. and fingers from frostbite. They had to go in the winter because the Chinese troops would intercept them and even even then did in the winter. So they were orphans, operational orphans. And and they'd grow up and go to these Tibetan children villages, sort of orphanages, really. Um, And so I was walking towards the lecture hall, which is situated in one of these villages and there was a, a, a hard scrabble packed dirt soccer pitch you know it looked really uncomfortable for falling i i was i am enough of a brit to have experienced playing football soccer on really nice grass because england does have good grass <laughs> you know and i was thinking <laughs> the first thing i thought damn i don't want to play football on that field that would be brutal um so there was this football field and and there was a 10-foot wall behind it running the length of the football field, painted white. And on top of it, in 10-foot-high letters, was a slogan of the school, Others Before Self. And I was just thinking, hmm, I wonder how many American high schools would have that <laughs> as, as their right. slogan. <laughs> how would that go down uh, in, yeah. with the you know, social media, me generation, whatever. Um, so that was it, one thing. Yeah. And, then, and then a series of those little you know, messages sort of sink in about how they do operate differently from us or me. Um, And so one thing it made me reflect on when I went back home was I immediately embedded back in my academic life and hustling the next grant and writing the next paper and, you know, talking to my collaborators. And I just realized how, you know, really how intensely pressured and Darwinian that science, Western science system is. It's, It's kind of you know, it kind of grinds you down. I mean, I've been hustling for grants from funding agencies for 40 years, and I kind of burned out on it. You know, it's hard. It doesn't mm-hmm. get any easier because there's younger whippersnappers that are very smart, and, uh, you know, they're <laughs> going to get your grant. So 
it de- it definitely made me reflect on the sort of hyper competitive nature of some parts of Western culture, including science for sure, uh, and just reflect on you know what is important. You know, is it important to know something, or to teach something, or to give something, or to what is important, and how does that work when you're an, a scientist and an educator? Yeah. Well, it's just interesting reading the book, and I, I told you before we're recording, I've not been able to finish it yet, but I look forward to finishing it just because, you know, one, you know, as I've already said, you're a fantastic writer for the lay audience, the general public, which is not something, you know, I've, I've worked with many scientists as a science educator, and many of the ones I've worked with have said they struggle with that, right? So I always applaud that. Um, but then just to the personal experiences you shared in Humble Before the Void was just very interesting to me, especially someone who I have embraced meditation and mindfulness over the past three or four years um, and gotten really into it. And so, you know, first when I, when you shared that book with us and saw that the Dalai Lama wrote, you know, the preface for it and everything, I just was immediately fascinated because I find him to be absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, I was... perspective on things. So. I mean, I've been privileged to meet him a couple of times and, uh, and it's always a, a singular experience. Uh, the first time was that first trip out, actually, and and it was in that same Tibetan children village. And that was this was in the winter, actually. It was January. It was a very um, a very difficult time to be there. It's in the foothills of the Himalayas, quite high up. <clears throat> Dharamsala has trivial factoid that a Brit will appreciate, like me. Um, it has the world's highest cricket stadium and. Oh, so Dromsla, there you go. Uh, now you know. <laughs> when you get asked that, now you know. Um, exactly. So we were in this uh, auditorium, this cold auditorium, very cold, and they'd given the Westerners blankets to put over their legs and even a few little heaters around, but it was brutal. And and he was mm. going to give an opening address, and everyone was, it was full of excitement and anticipation. There were probably 2,000 people, but it was a it was a cold, you know, it was an unadorned Spartan auditorium on a, on a below-freezing day, in the Himalayas, and the, what the, and that along that football field outside, which is the way his little he has the equivalent of a Pope mobile, has the DL mobile or whatever that he comes into a place <laughs> with. Um, that he was going to come along the edge of the field, and I'd seen walking in that the school children were starting to assemble in a long row along the side of the football field, along the place his vehicle would come, and. And we were waiting, and he was late, and it was oh, we were so cold, and it was quiet. People were murmuring, nothing was happening. And then suddenly, we heard this this sound, this wave of singing. So they were singing him in as his vehicle arrived. And I was like, wow, that was so cool, just the sound of that. And then he came, and you know, he just he just radiates when he's in a room, and he's a little frail. You know, he had trouble getting up the three steps onto the stage, and um, but he just his grin is just. Oh, it's just, it would melt anyone. It would melt the hardest heart. He's just so, and his comments are always, you know, they're always kind of offhand and insightful. And, you know, he, he has this very interesting and sensibility. So that's, so that, that's been a remarkable thing. And, um, but the, the monks all had their own insights and I learned a lot from them. I mean, I was teaching them, but I was learning a lot from them. And I had, mm-hmm. and they, and they gave me, you know, when you teach, well, the other thing I didn't say about the teaching experience there, which was also restorative for me, is, you know, I depend on my high-tech gadgets and my PowerPoints mm-hmm. and my whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty much warned. I said, you're going to be pretty much off the grid. And and it was almost like that. And there were a couple of workshops where, you know, if the wa- cold water, if the water was hot, you were lucky. If the power stayed on all day in the classroom, you were lucky. There was hardly any equipment. We'd make these these runs, these uh, equipment runs down to the local bazaar and we'd buy, you know, matchsticks and cloth and cardboard and foil and just super primitive ingredients to make experiments back in the classroom rather than bring stuff out from the West. Mm. Um, So you had to improvise and it was good to do that. It was good to have to lecture and talk and use simple analogies and simple equipment. And so they informed me about that, too, because I wondered how they understood these very abstract things of physics and cosmology. And I think the first striking little insight I had 
because I was always reaching for a good analogy. And then I, so I, I sort of turned the tables on one of the monks. I said, well, you have this idea of deep time, which is very interesting. You know, you have a kalpa, which is, uh, you know, a day in the life of Brahma. And it's maybe, it's been annotated in some text to be 4.32 billion years, quite a specific number. Happens to be mm -hmm. within 10% of the age of the earth. Go figure. Um, <laughs> and then there's a great kalpa, which is the lifetime of Brahma. And that's about a trillion years which to a cosmologist is a very interesting number because that's the stellariferous age of the universe. That's the time into the future for which stars will shine. After that, the universe goes dark forever. And so it's a very interesting coincidence. Huh. Two coincidences that the age of the Earth is a kalpa and a great kalpa is the luminous age of the universe before it truly goes dark forever. So that was interesting. But then I was asking, following up, that knowledge, which was interesting, because most religious traditions do not encompass crisp, precise numbers of that scale. I yeah. said, well, what does it mean to you? How, how do you understand a kalpa, just a kalpa, the 4.3 billion years? And the uh, monk I was talking to said, well, we imagine, we, so this is a collective analogy that people use, not just him, we imagine a mountain made of granite that's a kilometer high and a kilometer at the base, and we imagine a dove that flies by this mountain and brushes it with its wing once a day. And it's granite, so it only dislodges a few particles. And a kalpa is how long it takes the dove to erode the mountain to nothing. And I thought, wow, I get it. I, you know, I got it. I got it in my gut. And for a scientist, analogies are meaningful and metaphors too, hmm. when they get you somewhere other than your head, when they get you in a, in a deeper place, a more visceral place. Mm -hmm. And so that was just one example. But in the end, I heard a number of ways that they conceptualized or analogized or explained really quite difficult concepts in their tradition, or there were scientific concepts very differently than a Western scientist would. But, but, but how interesting was that? So I, I always was captivated by that. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, we are getting close to the end of our time together, and I feel like I could just keep talking to you about all these different experiences because it just sounds <laughs> yeah. so fascinating, all the different things you've done. Um, is there anything else that we should have asked you about that we just didn't yet? Anything else you want to share? Or? No, I mean, I could talk a little bit more about the Jesuits because I— you know, I haven't talked about them so much, and I know them very well. And I also know their history. I've had the luck to be there and, you know, give teach at their summer schools and so on. So they oh, wow. they, did, they do this very nice thing that started by George Coyne, uh, mm -hmm. the long-term director of the Vatican Observatory, almost 30 years, who I've known since I was a postdoc. Um, and he, he facilitated these summer schools where they get 24 um, students, first-year grads or last-year undergrads from around the world, mostly they're majority women, majority developing countries. Um, and they have this, you know, summer school for a month. I've taught at three of them. It's a really great experience. It's, it's on a par with teaching in, in the Buddhist monks and nuns. Um, because these people, these kids have often not left their own country. And so suddenly they're in Rome or Castel Gandolfo outside Rome, you know, in the heart of Europe, they get field trips to Florence. They go and they see all the sites in that month. I mean, it's just a fire hose of cultural experience while they're getting this boot camp on astronomy and some topic in astrophysics. So it's just an amazing experience. And those students now numbering over 400 because they've been going for 30 years are now uh -huh. really senior in astronomy. And some of them are directing observatories. And it's really cool to watch them progress. So that was a, and that's an amazing thing that the Vatican Observatory has done. Um, and I think what it's done also, of course, has been an emblem of rebuttal for the people who say that science and religion cannot coexist. Because like I said, all, right. all those Jesuits I know live the double life, and they don't seem to be schizophrenic in any way about that. Um, and also, you know, there's, uh, you know, the Vatican and the Catholic Church did have some, you know, they had some work to do because... You know, they gave Galileo a very hard time. Um, I mean, mm. I've been to the place where he was on house arrest, his villa, the Villa Gioia, it's the jewel villa outside Florence. It's a pretty, it's got its own vineyard. 
It's on a hillside outside <laughs> Florence. It's a pretty nice place if you're going to be holed up under house arrest. I could think of worse places. But he was blind, and, and it was miserable, and he had... Right. He, so, so that was his fate to avoid the torture and the full wrath of the Inquisition. So they had a lot to do to scramble from that. It took two centuries. You know, the, the church moves slowly. So it was a good mm. two centuries before they took his book from the banned book list. And then JP II, John Paul II, in 1992, got around to sort of exonerating him. You know, I would not call it a fulsome apology at that point, but it, it was, you know, it was a certain level of mea culpa that they treated him badly. Uh, the Bruno thing is off to the side because there's a lot of mis, there's a lot of misinterpretation of that. Bruno was burned at the stake as a, I think the quote is an impenitent and pertinacious heretic. So he was, it was heresy that got him in trouble. <laughs> not his astronomy belief. So he, he making mm -hmm. him a martyr to science, I think is very inappropriate. That's just, Wait, that's not can, historically correct. Um, can you say that phrase again? An impenitent and pertinacious heretic. Straight, oh straight, straight from the rap sheet. I mean, if you ever get arrested, just hope that isn't. <laughs> isn't uh, I need that on my business yeah. card. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. So, so that's the context, of course. Um, and so, but then we know that going back to calendar reform and so on, you know, this 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 church has also incubated this pretty interesting scientific activity that's that doesn't it doesn't hedge the science at all. They just do the science. They're scholars and they are in, into inquiry and they are free to follow their ideas. So you know, I've always appreciated that, and uh, it's not hmm. it's not always been a guarantee. So the geopol the Vatican politics of that I've also seen up close. And um, under Benedict, they almost were put out of existence. So Benedict was not, uh, John Paul II was a good supporter. So he was very friendly to science. He was very conservative socially, of course, but on science issues, he was supportive. And he started the Pontifical Academy sponsoring conferences uh, right there in the heart of you know the, the church. They'd have scientific conferences and, and John Paul supported that and would op give the opening speech. It occasionally got twitchy, like when Stephen Hawking went to one of them, and he relegated God to a boundary condition of the universe. Uh, so, <laughs> so there are a few awkward moments, but gen <laughs> but generally, it, generally it worked. So they had these conferences, and you know, and I think it was a very good sign of the sort of liberal thinking about science in that regard. Benedict was not so sympathetic, and Benedict was beholden to Opus Dei, and Opus Dei have always wanted to put the astronomers out of business, shut them down. Like, why are we doing this? Why are they here? Let's get rid of it. And then Francis came along, and, uh, oh, sidebar, I'm just boasting a little bit here. I'm up to three popes, so I've been, I've met, I met, <laughs> I met, it is actually pretty cool. I've met those three. <laughs> I'm up to three popes, especially for an agnostic. Yeah, yeah, You're collecting that's, them. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> that is pretty good. Well, uh, and I'm uh, three posts and a Dalai Lama, uh, you know, that's I'm an a, I'm an agnostic. But but the first uh, John Paul. <laughs> so that was going back a ways. And I had my kids there and one of my kids was very little. And and my ex-wife was a Catholic, a lapsed Catholic, but her family were very Catholic. And so they got all excited when they heard we we're going to have an audience with the Pope. And so I, I was there and I was holding my younger kid in my arms and there are photos of this uh and john paul you know tries to coochie coo him or whatever and 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 my kid is ah you know who's this who's the who's this scary dude in this white thing you know like, i don't want to so i have this picture of him grimacing and recoiling um and and then my ex-mother-in-law who is very catholic uh she was chagrined because in one of the photos it's clear that he's tousling my kid's hair. And my ex-mother-in-law gave us a super hard time because we didn't preserve that lock. You know, we, did, we oh. didn't make it a, a relic. Oh, as a it relic. Been, it oh. should have been a relic. Um, anyway, oh. so Benedict um, was anti and the, and the knives were out and Opus Dei was ascendant. Um, and then Francis comes in and it's all wonderful and copacetic now. Because, of course, Francis <laughs> is the first Jesuit pope. And he... Um, you know, he supports science and he's definitely liberal on that issue. And, and it's his tribe that are doing the astronomy. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have a, I even have a nice little story about that because Jose Funes, who I mentioned earlier, was a previous Vatican director, observatory director before Guy Consomagno, 
Uh, Funes is an Argentinian, as Francis is, and mm. the, back in the day, Jose Funes, the Vatican to be Vatican Observatory director for ten years, was a seminary student in Buenos Aires in the seminary school while, while the Pope was then the bishop of that diocese. And Jose told this great story. Uh, he was a seminary student, and his mom would come and bring him a little care package, a basket of goodies and baked things and whatever every Sunday. And so she was, she'd arrived, and she was walking in one of the portals of the seminary school, and she looked off to the side, and it was the laundry room. And she noticed and recognized the bishop, now Pope Francis, <laughs> by hand washing the seminarian's clothes, underwear, whatever. Mm. And she was very shy and, and modest woman, but she was so shocked by this that she rushed over and said, no, no, you, no, no, you shouldn't do this. This is inappropriate. And he just laughed and waved her off. So the humility is real. I mean, that was just a great, yeah. a great little story about Francis before he became a pope. Wow. Well, big fan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I think, yeah. Uh, one final question. We have gone a little over time, uh, but there's something that uh, Zach started doing when we started interviewing the Sinai Synapses Fellows, which is you know where we all met. Um, and it's a great question to end with, and so I always like using it. Is what do you wish that everyone knew? Like, if you were able to beam information into everybody's head around the world, what would it be? Hmm. I mean, uh, as in a science factoid or just about... It's whatever, whatever. you want. Well, I guess, okay, <laughs> I guess uh, since I'm so into exoplanets, there's going to have to be something about that that most people don't know. So what I would want everyone to know is that in the universe, there are more planets than stars, which means there are 10,000 billion billion planets in the universe. I'd want people to know that. Wow. That's wild. Yeah, I think I got to the part of your book where you mentioned something about you know, more stars than grains of salt, right? Or no, more planets than grains of sand. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it was just, yeah, it's just amazing. Hmm. Okay. Well, well, thank well, you, Chris. Thank you so much. Yeah, for joining us. Yeah. This was an outstanding conversation. No, it's fun. I enjoyed it too. Good, great questions. <laughs>